the last page has been turned on my most recent read. Steam is drifting up from a hot cup of tea. I know, I say it every week, no more coffee. And I am ready to tell you all about the book I've just finished. So here I am, no spoilers, opinion filled and ready to roll. All of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and ex-coffee addict. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing to-be-read pile and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. Another week has gone by, and what a week it was. I celebrated two huge things in my life, one of which was 14 years in the making, the other just under two, both which were definitely a reason to drink a small bottle of champagne to myself. So I did. No harm here. This week I held a poll on my Twitter and was interested to note that science fiction came out on top. Being honest, I am very set in my ways when it comes to the type of science fiction I read, though I am trying to change that and expand my view. Of course, everyone is different and the books we read and enjoy is just one of the ways our differences shine through. So light a few candles or perhaps just switch on that reading lamp because a bit of atmosphere is always a wonderful accompaniment to a reading session. Get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled. I've been drinking a lot of iced chai of late and that depends entirely on when you're listening and your preference, of course. No judgment here. And let's get started. I feel like I am on something of a journey with my reading right now. The books I'm requesting from NetGalley and the ones I end up buying from multiple sources, physical and online, are all very similar in genre. And that's why when I looked at the two books I had to decide between reading this week, I ended up veering on the side of Cozy Mystery. Does that mean I'm not going to do science fiction on this show Ever? Of course not. However, what it does mean is that this week I am travelling back to the 1920s, to a time when Erte was the king of art deco, cocaine was used as a local anaesthetic, women who liked sex were diagnosed with hysteria, and the Great War was an unfortunate but recent memory. Oh, and did I mention we're going to be in Melbourne? Yes, I am going to be talking about the first in the Phryne Fisher books by Kerry Greenwood. Originally released in 1989 under the title Cocaine Blues, in 1991 as Death by Misadventure, and then in 2005 in the UK as Miss Phryne Fisher Investigates, the first novel is an introduction to our intrepid private detective and heroine. I have to be honest, until relatively recently, I'd actually overlooked these books. In fact, I didn't even know they existed. Wow. Talk about informed. I kept on meaning to get a copy of at least one and give it a read, but then something else came up, probably another book, and I would read that instead. 
Well, this year, in fact, in the last week, I finally got around to getting a copy of the first book, and it wasn't at all what I expected. Bored socialite Phryne Fisher leaves the tedium of the London season for adventure in Australia. Tea dances in West End halls, weekends in the country with guns and dogs. Phryne Fisher, she of the grey-green eyes and Diamante garters, is rapidly tiring of the boredom of chit-chatting with retired colonels and fox-trotting with weak-chinned wonders. Instead, Phryne decides it might be amusing to try her hand at being a lady detective on the other side of the world. As soon as she books into the Windsor Hotel in Melbourne, Phryne is embroiled in mystery, poisoned wives, drug smuggling rings and corrupt cops, not to mention erotic encounters with beautiful Russian ballet star Sasha Delis. England's green and pleasant land just can't compete with these new, exotic pleasures. Though there are many similarities between the Phryne we are introduced to in the book and in the TV series, there are some huge differences that took me aback when I started reading. And just to reassure myself that it wasn't a case of misremembering, I did actually start to watch the TV series again for probably about the sixth time yesterday evening and made my way through four <laughs> exciting and beautiful to watch episodes before I went to bed. I probably should have just stayed up and watched more the first thing that I couldn't help but notice was Book Phryne's age. Essie Davis is a fantastic Miss Fisher on screen, but she is definitely not the 28-year-old socialite portrayed in the first few novels. Though very little is actually made of her age, the fact that the book is based 10 years after the First World War, and she mentioned she was in school for at least part of it, makes it clear that she is not the worldly wise experienced woman of the TV show. Of course, she is still incredibly experienced, she is aware of many of the world's problems, she's well-travelled and has no issue with admitting that she loves spending time in the company of men. To a certain extent, her sexuality is a tool she uses in order to get her way, whether as a distraction or a manipulation, and she's not ashamed of that. Miss Phryne Fisher Investigates isn't a long book. It's a total of 195 pages, at least in the edition I have to hand, but it packs a lot of story, colourful characters and exciting adventure into those pages. And for anyone who thinks, but I've seen this episode so the book will be just the same, you're very wrong. Though the core of the story is very similar, there are some key differences that give the book more depth. The story starts at a loud house party in England, where Phryne's parents are loudly arguing, offering entertainment to the masses as per usual, and Phryne is doing her best to play the society game, albeit reluctantly. There is a robbery, some jewels are stolen from the lady of the house, and Phryne solves the mystery, finding the jewels in a chandelier and catching the thief. All of this catches the eye of Colonel and Mrs Harper, who are concerned for their daughter Lydia. At a tea the next day, they tell Phryne about their daughter, who has married and moved to Australia. They fear that she is being poisoned by her husband, John Andrew, and ask Phryne if she'll go to Melbourne to investigate. Always keen to escape the boredom of having to be somewhat respectable, Phryne accepts and arranges passage to the place of her birth. Along the way, she meets up with an old acquaintance she made while an ambulance driver in the First World War, 
a very forward-thinking Scottish female surgeon, Dr. Elizabeth Macmillan. And initially, this feels like an unnecessary character introduction. However, as the story progresses, it becomes very clear there is a purpose to pretty much every single thing that happens in the book. She doesn't write anything without reason. On her way to the Grand Windsor Hotel, where she has booked a suite for her stay, she meets Sess and Bert, two communist taxi drivers, dock workers and general good men, who she seems to bond with very quickly despite the differences in their life experience, class and outlook. While at the hotel, she encounters young Dorothy Williams, who has recently lost her job as a housemaid due to a false accusation from the son of the house. She is prepared to assault him as he boasts about his conquests, but Phryne re rescues her and prevents her from making a massive mistake that could see her in prison for assaulting a member of the upper class. Dot, ever grateful, is then offered a job as Phryne's maid, despite the fact that it will, at times, test her Catholic sensibilities. With no time to waste and a mission to accomplish, though she is in no hurry to return to London, Phryne starts to make her presence known in Melbourne, building connections in order to get an introduction to Lydia and John Andrews to see if what Colonel and Mrs Harper feared is actually true. To Phryne, who enjoys fast cars, men and flying aeroplanes, she is pretty accomplished, to be fair. London was very tame, but there is something about Melbourne that excites her. At her first dinner party with the cream of society, Phryne meets Russian ballet dancers Ellie and Sasha Delis. There is an immediate attraction between Sasha and Phryne, but she is no fool. With the graceful young man, she entertains the masses at the party as they sensually dance the tango together, thus setting the scene for scandalous gossip among the other attendees. She gets the opportunity at the same time to meet Lydia and John. Lydia Andrews was well-dressed and had been made up by an expert, but was so limp and lifeless that she might have been a doll. At the same time, however, Phryne notes that Lydia is far more alert and aware than she appears. As I've already said, nothing is mentioned without reason. Though it may seem as though the book is only about the ailing Mrs Lydia Andrews, Phryne Fisher manages to get right in the middle of two other rather more exciting and harrowing mysteries that all come together to make one massive ball of mystery that she really feels she has to solve, though at this point she isn't a detective. She is just someone who has an inquiring mind and is very observational. Mystery one. Is Lydia Andrews slowly being poisoned by her evil, controlling husband? Mystery two. Who is this King of Snow, the cocaine dealer everyone in the city fears, but also uses to their advantage? Mystery three. Who is Butcher George, the man responsible for the deaths of many desperate women who were caught in unfortunate circumstances? We've already taken a look at the first mystery, but the second and third ones are even more intriguing. And somehow, Phryne not only gets involved in all of them, much to the disappointment of the local constabulary, but she also helps to solve the cases. 
I'm not going to tell you who did it. I'm not going to tell you how they did it because that is a spoiler. <laughs> and you should know by now, I don't give spoilers. Things get, initially they start with Phryne obviously needing to go to Melbourne and meeting Lydia and John Andrew for the first time. At this same time, she meets Sasha. And when she is determinedly walking home on her own after a party that doesn't end until two o'clock in the morning, she is encount she encounters Sasha, who initially appears drunk and unsteady on his feet. It's only when she manages to get him into a cab with the help of Sess and Bert, who seem to always appear just when they're needed, which initially would make me feel suspicious, but it doesn't in this case. They're just genuine nice guys who seem to be <laughs> in situ who seem to be there when they're needed. It's only when she gets him into the cab with Sessenbert's help that she realizes he has actually been stabbed in the arm and he's losing blood. So of course she takes him back to her hotel suite at the Windsor and she nurses him back to health, much to the, the not dismay, but slight, slight wariness of Dot, who is very sensible and very used to people who behave properly or what she considers to be properly in society. Of course, no one can resist Ms. Phryne Fisher for very long and Sasha has no intention of resisting her at all because he while he has very good intentions when it comes to the reason why he got stabbed he was trying to find the supplier of the cocaine that actually killed his mother he is also very well aware that his family doesn't have any money and Phryne Fisher is obviously wealthy interested in him and he sees her as almost a target for not blackmail but manipulation he sees her as someone who potentially would be interested in marrying him of course Phryne quickly <laughs> dissuades him from this when she tells him that she has no interest in getting married she is happy with her life as it is she doesn't want to get married she doesn't want to have children she isn't interested in children at all and she is happy with her happy with her lot which many women would be if they had pretty much unlimited funds a title she is a member of the elite though she never throws it in people's faces. And she is incredibly intelligent. Having dealt with Sasha and finding out all this information about the King of Snow, or the Roi de Neige, as Sasha refers to it, because he prefers, he feels more comfortable speaking French than English, because he's a ballet dancer and that is a language that they do learn to speak. And she eventually escorts him back to the Princesse de Grasse, who is looking after him and his sister and is actually his grandmother. But they don't really go into that in great detail. This starts Phryne's involvement in searching for the drug dealer who is who has Melbourne in, in fear and almost holds them hostage 
And at the same time, she is still trying to find out what's happened to Lydia. Meanwhile, a third storyline has been introduced. And it was introduced very early on, though it didn't involve initially Phryne. And this is trying to find out who the butcher George is. And George is, it kind of feels almost appropriate in many ways talking about George and what he does now, though not for the UK. He is a backstreet abortionist and it is brought to the attention of Phryne after Cess and Bert are essentially, they're driving their taxi after they've dropped Phryne off at the hotel the first time. And this man essentially dumps a passenger in the back of their car, a young girl called Alice. And Cess and Bert notice that she is bleeding and they immediately take her to the hospital where Elizabeth McMillan is a surgeon. She's a female surgeon and she is a surgeon looking after women with female problems. Alice, it turns out, has been dropped off because she was bleeding heavily following an illegal abortion. And the person who carried out this abortion essentially just drops women off to die because that's what happens when they get treated by him. He, Cess and Bert, take her to the hospital where Elizabeth treats her. But at this particular time, it was illegal to have an abortion and a woman could be sentenced to time in prison for doing so. This, having been brought to Phryne's attention by Cess and Bert and also by her friend Elizabeth McMillan, decides to look into it. She gets the cooperation somehow from the police, though that said, they were obviously trying to find out who was carrying out these surgeries because it's illegal on two counts, illegal for the person to perform it and illegal for the person to have it. So she gets the cooperation of the police. And this is a third investigation that is going on while she is looking at Lydia. She's looking at the Roi de Neige and she is looking at the illegal abortions. Or rather looking at who is carrying them out. She stretches herself a little bit thin, but that doesn't mean nothing gets resolved. Underlying all of this is the Turkish bars run by Madame Breda and Gerda, who is probably more involved with the cocaine dealing than anyone else, apart from the, <laughs> the King of Snow themselves. It gets really complicated, I have to say. I'm sitting here thinking, how am I going to explain this without spoiling anything? And it does get quite complicated. And I have to say, that's what I love about it. Everything is, it's not kept in its, in its own place, but you start to see, as you're reading the book, you start to see how all these plots interlink and how certain people are connected to other people. Because there is as I've said previously, nothing within this book is done for no reason. We have the introduction of young Alice, who was a housemaid. In the TV series, she happens to be a friend of Dot's, but that isn't the case in the books. And then you have 
uh, WPC Jones, who ends up being the person who is collected by Butcher George and his cohorts in order to break the abort the illegal abortion ring. And she also appears when, for some reason, the King of Snow has decided Phryne is a risk to their business. They report her to the police and the police come round to investigate and search her hotel room for drugs. And WPC Jones is in the room and is the person that conducts the search. And this is one scene that I absolutely love in the book. The police are all in the room. Sasha is still there. Poor Dot is there. They've been searching the hotel room themselves for the drugs because they know that as soon as somebody knocks on the door that they are going to be potentially arrested for having these drugs that they never purchased or hid themselves. And when the police arrive, Phryne stands there and as they're saying we're going to take you, we'll either search you here or we'll take you down to the station. And in just this absolutely, I don't care manner, she strips off her dressing gown. She's completely naked beneath it and says, then you'll have to take me like this. She doesn't care. She knows that she's innocent. She knows that they're not going to find anything. However, she has her suspicions that they might plant something. So she tells them that you search me, I want you need to be searched as well. Because she knows that potentially whoever is in the room is going to plant something on her. So she is arrested because she is getting too close to where everything is. And sure enough, they discover that Constable Ellis, one of the police who was searching her room, has a package of cocaine on his chest, attached to his chest with a plaster. So she's exposing him and it turns out that he is being blackmailed into planting drugs on Phryne Fisher in order to get her out of the way. Lydia, in the meantime, is being spied on because Phryne is desperate to try and desperate to reassure her friends and clients that their daughter is not at risk. She asks Elizabeth to perform some tests on samples of Lydia's nails and hair and it turns out that she is slowly being poisoned with arsenic. However, her act of being naive and totally relying on her husband is just that and there is a moment where Phryne and Lydia are together and somehow Phryne comes to the realization that she is at that moment in time being poisoned and she goes back to her hotel feeling ill and unstable and creates a homemade emetic using mustard have to be honest, using mustard, eating a considerable amount of mustard would make anybody sick. But she does this because she's aware that she has been poisoned because she doesn't feel right in herself. And that brings up obviously more doubt because she's also overheard conversations that Lydia has had with her friends where she's giving them business advice. And she's also told her husband in a public location where she wasn't aware that she was being overheard 
that he needs to listen to her because she knows what she's talking about. So Lydia is not as naive and vulnerable as her parents believe her to be. But she also is being poisoned. So that begs the question, what is going on? And it all gets tied up at the end. I wouldn't say with a neat bow, but it does get tied up. And I love this aspect of the book because it does bring about all these interesting character stories. It introduces you to this world that unless you are over 100 years old, you won't have experienced because there's nothing like it now. These were the... <laughs> These were the Roaring Twenties, and this is at the height of that moment, just before everything sank with the Great Depression. As I've already said, this book is filled with a lot of the glamour and extremes we often associate with the time before the Great Depression that started in 1929. Phryne is a perfect example of a woman who knows what she wants and she goes after it no matter the consequences. She is a woman with modern sensibilities and though she is very clearly someone who is aware of the fact that her class entitles her to more than others, she doesn't fling that privilege in their faces because she didn't always have it. She didn't inherit it until she was slightly older, slightly more aware, and her entire family moved from Australia to England when her father inherited a title after multiple people died during the war in order for her father to inherit. Before I get into what I thought of the book, though, you know I like to make it make sure everything is balanced. So what did other reviewers think? Briny, <laughs> appropriately, gave the first book five stars and clearly enjoyed it. I first read this book a long, long time ago and I had forgotten just how good it is. Since then, I have read the whole series up to date and have enjoyed every one of them. In this first book, we are introduced to the amazing Miss Fisher, and we quickly find out the basic facts about her charmed and charming life. I enjoy all the little details about life at that time, about the clothes they wore. And Phryne Fisher wears a lot of different clothes. Sometimes she changes four or five times in a day. We also meet many of the characters who will take part in future stories. I had a lot of fun with this reread and may just find the time to keep going and read some more. Some good things are worth doing at least twice. Broken Tune doesn't have such a fondness for the book, preferring the TV show, and gave this book just two stars. As much as I love the TV series, the book series will not be one that I continue with. All that I love about the TV series, the 1920s atmosphere, the banter between the characters, the quirky fun bits like Dr. Mac's dry sense of humour... I just can't get a feel for in the book. I get that the book is different and that the characters and backstories are different, but I can't even get a sense of setting, any setting, from the book. The writing is sparse and focused on dialogue, and except for whatever clothes people, especially Phryne, are wearing, there seemed to be hardly any description of anything. 
This strongly reminded me of the Murder, She Wrote TV tie-ins, which rely on the reader's knowledge of the series to fill in the missing parts with the knowledge of what the TV series had already communicated, visuals of places and characters. Except, of course, that the tie-ins were written to correspond with the TV series, which is not the case with the Franny Fisher book, as the book preceded the TV series and has a slightly different storyline and characters. What's probably worse about not getting a sense of place, and I was really looking forward to reading about Melbourne in the 1920s, was that I didn't even get a sense of the 1920s. So yeah, this is where I am glad I got a copy from the library. I still love the TV series, so much so that I consoled my disappointment with the book by re-watching a couple of favourite episodes on Netflix until the wee hours. So where do I fall when it comes to this book, as it's the first I've read in this series and by this author? Here's where I get into the nitty gritty. I loved it. I, unlike uh, Broken Tune, I did get that feel of the 1920s, the glitz, the glamour. I could almost imagine myself in a ballroom setting as she was in the first chapter in London with the grandiose, beautiful chandeliers, people talking really loudly, enjoying their company, drinking out of beautiful champagne goblets rather than the flutes that we're traditionally associating with the drink these days. We even get descriptions of the food that they enjoy with a subtle, delicate asparagus soup as a starter and the conversation that Phryne clearly doesn't enjoy going on around her and that moment you get that feeling of she'd much rather be alone in her hotel room enjoying the food because that's what she wanted at that moment in time. I really liked the writing. I felt that because the book was so short being only 195 pages which is very short for a book these days everything was crammed in And it made the story far more action-packed. I think had it been longer, it wouldn't have been so paced, so well-paced as it was. There are certain terms I admit I had to look up, such as what a gasper was. I had no idea that a gasper is apparently what they referred to as a cheaper cigarette. So a galoise, for example. And there are moments where that is something she is constantly lighting up a gasper. And when she's going to dinner, when she meets Lydia and Andrew and Sasha and Ellie for the first time, it's mentioned that she is smoking a Russian cigarette with gold gilt tip because she needs to fit in and make appear- make her appearance far more elegant than she feels. I know that there is mention of the fashion and the descriptions and there is one very early on we're talking about the clothes and they are stunning. I can see them in my head and that was one thing I do wish that they'd done in the the TV show that they did very well in the book and that was this description of the clothing. Not saying that the clothing they wear in the TV, TV episodes isn't stunning But the dress that she wears when she dances with Sasha for the first time, this description just, it makes you think, oh, wow, that dress is beautiful. And I'm definitely not someone who is fashion forward. 
Madame shook the dress out and flung it over a stand and stood back to watch Phryne's reaction with restrained pleasure. Dorothy gasped and even Phryne's eyes widened. It was deep claret edged with dark mink, evidently a design by Erte with few seams, the weight of the garment depending entirely on the shoulder. The deep décolleté was artfully concealed with strings of jet beads, which served the function of preventing the dress from sliding off the wearer's shoulders, but leaving a gratified impression that this was, indeed, what it might at any moment do. Doesn't that sound delicious as a dress, that deep claret, dark mink, jet beads, so elegant, so suggestive, but at the same time, so sleek. Will I Read More by Kerry Greenwood? I'm actually looking forward to getting a few more in this series as this book was fast-paced, exciting and gave me the feeling of being in a glamorous 1920s setting without all the trouble associated with it. I'm not sure if I will build my collection in paperback, though the copy I have is beautiful with a very elegant cover showing slender Phryne Fisher wearing a beautiful green dress and matching earrings and enjoying tea from a delicate Chinese-designed pot, which makes me think that they will make a stunning addition to my bookcase. If you're looking for something like this or you loved this and want something else, then this might be where to start. There are so many that I could recommend. <laughs> really, there are. But if you're looking for something that has a similar feel, then it really has to be a book written in the 1920s. If you want a cosy mystery, then think about something by Agatha Christie, such as The Man in the Brown Suit or Murder on the Links, both of which were released in the mid to late 20s when the Friny Fisher mystery is actually based. If you're looking for a book that is really about glamour, society and class, then I would suggest something by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I know that Fitzgerald's books have an American rather than Australian society feel, but it is similar with drugs, drink, sex and scandal at the core. The Great Gatsby definitely has the party feeling, despite the deeper theme throughout. We're now halfway through summer, possibly. <laughs> I don't know. With the weather doing what it's doing, I really couldn't say. And we are definitely more than halfway through the year. This time last year, I was struggling with my reading list. I was lacking ideas when it came to what I wanted to read. And I hit a massive block. This year... I have managed to maintain a really good balance. I found new authors and enjoyed many of them, not all. And even better, I am way ahead of my self-imposed target. And I think that's what happened. That really is important. They have to be targets you've chosen for yourself rather than ones that you feel you need to meet. I am going to continue the reading pattern I have managed to establish, which is a good thing, and I'm enjoying it, which is ultimately the most important thing. My TBR continues to grow. <laughs> Shocker. In the last week alone, I have managed to add 11 books to the pile, and I am looking forward to reading every single one of them 
because I'm not putting any pressure on myself. However, obviously, as I keep on buying more, I might change my mind about what comes next. Despite this, <laughs> I am still looking for books to add to the ever-growing bookcase, which is now reaching the point where it is starting to overbalance quite alarmingly. So if you do have any fiction recommendations you would love to hear me talk about, or you just think I'd like to read it, send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com. Yes, at some point I will update it. Or DM me on Twitter or Instagram and I will be sure to take a look because I always like finding new authors. Over the weekend, I sent out my first newsletter for the podcast. If you want to sign up for it, then click the form on my website or my Twitter profile. Somehow, <laughs> oh God, though I am not sure how it happened, we are in August. It's possible many of you are still planning to head off somewhere exotic, or maybe like me, you're going to be sitting on your balcony or in your back garden. If you're stuck for something to read or you're an airport shopper, let's take a look at a few of the books you may encounter. All of these are released on or around the 2nd to 4th of August. We've just been talking about a mystery and here's another thrilling one. This one comes from author John Connolly. It's titled The Furies and is the latest in his series about private investigator Charlie Parker. Trust is about wealth, excess, scandal and the mystery surrounding a powerful Wall Street couple just before the crash in the 1920s by author Hernan Diaz. He also wrote the 2018 novel In the Distance and this one's up. It's in the long list for the 2022 Booker Prize. If you love books about the 1960s, Tales of the Mob, gangs and crime on the streets then the final book in the city blues quartet by ray celestin should be added to your collection sunset swing has a very musical sound of it to it in fact that's what i thought of when i first read the title but is it all blues jazz and dark nightclubs or is it something more sinister so how are things in the bookish household this week? They're not too bad, if I'm being completely honest. As I said last week, I had a very, I had great news at the beginning of the week with the announcement that my IVA had come to an end. And this week I received the certificate confirming that it actually was. That didn't stop my worry, however, I have previously mentioned that I do have spending issues and it is something that is quite common with people with depression and mental health disorders that they struggle to control their spending and it is something that I have had issues with in the past. This week was a perfect example. I managed to spend what well, I thought I was going to spend a lot more. I went into my local bookshop with every intention of just buying as many books as I could. I managed to find three. And this is where I suppose I can understand why some people always buy on Amazon. I purchased three books on in physical form in the shop and it came to nearly £30. They were all paperbacks. None of them were brand new, but they were 
it was expensive. And for someone who has been very on a very tight budget for a very long time, it made me wince a little bit, even though I had planned on spending more. I then went on this this weekend, I then went on Amazon and decided on Friday evening I was going to buy some more books because I just fancied it was just something I wanted to do. I had also intended on buying a table for my balcony, but yeah, don't even go there. I couldn't find anything that I wanted there. But I bought four books and it came to less than £20 for the four books, which I have to admit shocked me a little bit. I bought the two books in the Six of Crows duology by Lee Bardugo. I read the first one and I've spoken about it previously. I will post a link to that episode below and I really enjoyed it. So I thought I may as well get the second one. Maybe it'll push me to read it sooner if I buy a physical copy of the book. And they were three pounds each, which I have to admit surprised me a lot but it just highlighted to me also the fact that I'd purchased books on Tuesday. I'd purchased books the previous Saturday. And then this week I purchased another load of books. And though I have done that in the past, I had managed, to, I gained a tiny bit of control over my impulses. So now I've got to control my impulses myself and I need to get better at it. It's something that does worry me a little bit, but time will tell. If I start to rack up credit card debt again, then I will have an issue. But as I don't have one, that is currently not something I'm thinking about. And I'm not going to make trouble for myself. Another thing that happened this week is my sleep got really badly disrupted. I know that they say women of a certain age and I'm not going to be someone who says, oh, no, that's not going to happen to me because that would be a lie. However, my sleep has been appalling and that has has really affected my concentration which is difficult at the best of times and motivation has been bad because of it my sleep has reached the point where I'm waking up every morning at between four and five o'clock and then struggling to go back to sleep again I'm hoping that it is a phase that I'm going through but anybody else who's in their late 40s who is experiencing this, let me know. Is it something that goes away? Because it's the hope that it's going to go that I'm really clinging on to right now. And yeah, I did have some good news this weekend with regard my mental state. And that is that I was given an update on my diabetes medication, which will hopefully help at least control certain elements that I've noticed. My temper is very short because my sugar levels are so erratic. I've had headaches. My mouth has been really dry. I've been very tired. All of these things contribute towards irritability that isn't associated with age. However, I have now got a new medication. So fingers crossed that will help, which will in turn have an effect on everything else. And I feel like I've babbled, but that's at the moment where I am. So I did have a momentary frustration moment with my doctor, but I have got an appointment and I am going to be getting everything sorted. I want it done by the end of the summer. So yeah, that's where I am right now. Hopefully you are all feeling much better, enjoying the weather 
and not being too adversely affected by, depending on where you are, obviously, constant heat. I know that we're apparently in the UK, we are supposed to be getting another increase in temperature in the next couple of weeks. And there are rumours that we are going to have summer into October. Not sure how I feel about that right now. Well, that's it for this week. And thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family? And please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at beingbookishpod. Or you can check out my website, beingbookish.co.uk, where I am now getting much better at uploading reviews for new books. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week. And the next book is, well, not really calling me because I don't know what it is going to be yet. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.